0: well um we started a series a teaching series last week that's a 10-week teaching series um going through what we're calling sacred pathways and i'll kind of decode that for you because you might be like that sounds cookie um sacred pathways are simply spiritual temperaments that when a person does this it's just easy and natural and less effort to connect with god if that makes sense right We talk about, um, and we said this a little bit last week, we talk about personality temperaments, right? And personality temperaments are helpful if done well because they help me know how to relate to you because my temperament's different than yours. And so you might do that in your workplace, in your family, whatever it might be. A spiritual temperament is saying, what's the way that I best connect not this way but this way? with god and we don't often give a whole lot of thought to that in fact many of us grew up in a church setting where we had a church leader and they told us what they did for their quiet time and we naturally assume that's probably what i should do (laughs) for my quiet time or this is what my devotional life looked like your pastor might have said or your small group leader or some discipler that you had and so you think well that must be how everyone does it and oftentimes we take it on, and it's sort of like, remember the Old Testament story where, where David's going to go fight Goliath, and King Saul, who is this huge guy in David's young, he says, here, use my armor. <laughs> you Remember that? David puts it on. He's like, I can't even move in this thing. I can't function it. And that's kind of one of those pictures of when I take on how it is that you do something, it might be like David putting on Saul's armor. Are you with me? It's the idea that I'm trying to function in a way using what really works for someone else, but it just doesn't work with how I'm hardwired. And last week, we said this isn't just something that we're making up, that there's actually in Scripture, in fact, David himself talks about this idea that, that God has uniquely designed and hardwired every single individual And I gave the example, I said, you know, I've got four kids and I've got introverts in there and extroverts in there and I've got ones that are really competitive and I've got ones that are a little more passive and and they're all different and they like to do different things. One of them always likes to play ping pong. (coughs) The others don't. If I said, I'm only going to relate to you four by playing ping pong, I, I wouldn't be a good father, but I know what this one likes. I've got one who is like physical touches his love language. You know what I mean by that? And just, it's, I mean, you know, sometimes I'm just like, okay, stop, get off me. So, you know, but like, he needs that. And if I'm not touching him, he, he doesn't feel loved. But if I try to do that with the other kids, they kind of be like, what are you doing, dad? You're creeping me out, you know? I learn what they're like, and then I try to give them the love that they need, Okay? If that's true with my kids, and I didn't create their temperaments, I received their temperaments, is it true with God? But he's not just receiving our temperaments, he chose them. He's not just receiving, he picked and chose what temperament you have. And then he says, I want you to explore that, and I want you to love me in that way, and I want to love you in the way you need To be loved because we all need god's love we said last week it's our our need for god's love it's not casual and occasional it's necessary and consistent we need it badly but oftentimes what we're longing for how we want how we want to engage it it's just different and god he's okay with that (laughs) he created the system to be like that and so the, these weeks, essentially, what we're doing is we're looking at these nine different spiritual temperaments, what are called sacred pathways. It's sacred because I'm connecting with God in that way. And what we're going to realize is that everyone's profile will look a little different. Like if, you know, kind of represented by these circles, if the one that was really significant for you was like a large circle and the one that was small was like a really tiny circle... I, all of ours would look different. And it'd be so interesting to compare. I'd be like, oh, what does yours look like? Oh, mine looks like this. What, you know, what does yours look like? And so that's, that's what, what we're gonna do. And as we go through these, these weeks, um, I'm gonna suggest that at the end of our time, if, if, you, if you track with this, you're gonna have a composite image in your mind of some way of what is my spiritual temperament? What does it look like? And I'm gonna encourage you don't view this as I'm gonna come on Wednesday and think these great thoughts <laughs> I'm gonna come on Wednesday and listen to these interesting ideas. I want you to think to yourself. I'm going to during the week try Okay, like that's what I'm gonna push you for if you're just coming to listen. Don't bother. It's it's, it's not that interesting um, But if you're gonna say hmm, I'm gonna try this one out I'm gonna do that and so I'm gonna give you some ideas as we go uh, I'm, I'm going to say this week, here's my challenge and encouragement to you. Here's what I would love to see you do through this process. And this is coming from a, a book by Gary Thomas entitled Sacred Pathways. Um, and it's really helpful if you, if you kind of feel like, I, I sort of feel like I'm in a spiritual rut. You know what I mean by that? Um, I hope you know the difference between a pattern and a rut. Sometimes we can develop patterns in our life which are really helpful, but you need to learn when that pattern might become a rut. And if you're feeling like just kind of lifeless, maybe that's it. And so this is an opportunity for for you to explore some other pathways and maybe get out of that and develop some new enthusiasm. Does that sound good? You with me on that? So it's it's gonna be pretty practical based. We're always gonna do some kind of theological groundwork so that we're not just making stuff up, but, but we're actually leveraging from Scripture. Um, so last week, again, we talked about this idea that we're all different. We asked questions like, do you have just one pathway, or do you have many? Uh, do your pathways change over time? Are there seasons of life, do you think, where like one pathway really resonates with you, and maybe there's a different season of life that's coming up that a different pathway kind of resonates with you, um, the, the danger of steering clear from pathway envy, <laughs> right, man, my friend, I mean, that's they do this, or my spouse, or my pastor, or my small group leader, and I try it, and it just falls flat, it doesn't do anything for me, the danger of becoming too self-focused, we talked a little bit about that, the danger of going too far. And having a sort of individualized concept of my spiritual life my spiritual profile and sort of being excluded from community so if you missed week one i would encourage you to go back listen on the podcast or on the website just to kind of get a good framework because we laid a lot of good groundwork for that um in your if you picked up a bullet and hopefully you did uh, this is an assessment every single week whichever topic where whichever pathway we're talking about i'm going to put the uh kind of assessment in here and you can do it on your own um whenever that might be but you're answering basically from zero to five which of these questions like resonates like if you go oh yeah that's totally then okay i'm a five or then that was zero that doesn't you know at all you add them up at the end 30 is the maximum and what what they say is if you have about 15 or more so half if you've if you've uh, responded to about half of those or more, that's probably kind of a dominant sacred pathway or spiritual temperament for you. So again, encourage you to do that. And um, if I have if you did miss last week, this is what I had handed out, and it has more details on all nine of the spiritual pathways. So if you're interested, it's up here. You can come get it afterwards. But let me just like say one sentence about each nine. I won't do this every week, but at least for the first couple weeks, I, I want us to kind of understand generally what we're talking about, okay? So the, the um, first pathway, this is one we're going to look at tonight, is the, the naturalist pathway. Um, it's loving God outdoors. I won't say much more than that because that's what we're going to spend much of our night, our time on tonight. There's, there's the sensate uh, pathway. This has to do with your five senses. A, a, a sensate Christian is someone who wants to be surrounded by beauty. Man, I want the architecture. I'm, I might want incense. But, like, I need my senses to be stimulated. Then it's really easy for me to worship. It's really easy for me to engage. There's, there's the traditionalist pathway. This is worshiping God through, through ritual. Man, I love the traditions of the church. The thought that someone's been doing this for 2,000 years. Ooh, <laughs> that gets me excited. You know, I love that sort of thing. Symbols. Um, they oftentimes define their faith in, in terms of matters of activity, patterns, and that sort of thing. There's the ascetics pathway. Ascetic has to do with solitude, with simplicity. So, you know, while the sensate wants all the, man, I want the sounds and the smells, the ascetic's like, that's distracting. Just leave me alone. Put me, put me somewhere in a room or whatever, you know, where I can pray. And a lot of these, there's going to be overlap for you might have a naturalist, what we talk about tonight, and a sensei, I wanna be in nature, but I need to hear all of the different uh, uh, inputs going on around me. There's, there's the activist pathway. The activist pathway is the person who says, man, I feel closest to God when I'm, when I'm sort of fighting injustice. Favorite passages in the Bible, man, when Jesus turns over the table in the temple, that was awesome, right? Because he's standing up for truth.
1: Um,
0: there's, there's the caregiver's pathway. This is the person who'd say, man, I see Jesus in the broken, in the hurting, and, and to care for them, oh, just, I just, I, I feel like that's, that's what it means to be really pursuing Jesus in my life. And, you know, a caregiver would look at someone who's sort of a, uh, a contemplative, you know, they're, they're sort of just thinking these great thoughts or the intellectual, and they're just like, man, they're lazy. Get out there and do some work. Um, there's the enthusiast uh, pathway. Enthusiasts, they, they love celebration. You say the word like celebrate and they're a cheerleader. They love that. Sometimes you might see an enthusiast at church worshiping and you're just like, just calm down, man. Like, take it easy. Okay, well, yes, okay, you love Jesus. Like, calm down. There's, there's, there's the contemplatives. Contemplatives, when they think about their relationship with God, it's like a romance. Man, I just, I love thinking about how much God loves me and that just stirs me i feel i feel so close to god and and just thinking about those thoughts it's this almost kind of romantic sort of endeavor and then there's the intellectual pathway the intellectual pathway would be someone who says i love god but you got to get my mind going first you know you're going to sing a song that has seven words and you sing it 11 times nope not interested can't worship god you you give me a song where it's like it's it's making me reflect and think and wrestle with like who god is and his oh love it would love to worship then but you've got to stimulate my mind in order for my heart to launch out does that make sense hopefully as you're hearing these you, you you might kind of start kind of going like i think that one's interesting to me i'll tell you a funny story um I, uh, I won't tell you who it was. It's one of our staff pastors, but I was talking to him uh, last week, and I was telling him what I'm going through, and I said, so here's, here's what we're doing, and, and I said, I'd be curious to know what do you think you are. So I read, you know, you think you're the sensitive, and he goes, no, like, okay, uh, naturalist, and he goes, huh, uh-oh. and I'm reading him. And we get to the very end, he goes, maybe I don't love Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I, I'm, I'm sure you do. I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain you do, Pastor Dick Foth, but... Um, <clears throat> um, oftentimes, people who, who there are going to be some people who, who totally resonate with one of these, like big time, and then there's going to be other people who would say, I'm like 20% on five of those, you know what I mean? And so one might not stand out to you as just like a flashing red light, that's fine, that's okay, um, but you might say, I'm, I'm kind of a balance of like these three, like all three of these, but there are parts of them that are no, you know what I mean by that? So... If, if one's not absolutely flashing, don't freak out, okay? It doesn't mean you don't love Jesus, I promise you. Um, so here's what I want to do. I want to go to some passages of Scripture, and I want to do, as I mentioned, kind of some theological groundwork um, of what we need to think about when we think about um, the, the naturalist pathway, because that's, that's what we're talking about tonight the naturalist pathway is someone who says it's easy for me to love god when i'm outdoors when i'm in nature now some of you i know like that's your thing we were we were talking with the band uh backstage we've talked before and 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 one of the guys like oh that's totally me you know like that's that's my particular one this the naturalist christian would say man i want to leave the building i don't care how beautiful and ornate it is (laughs) I want to get outside, and I just, put me by a river, you know, the sound of that. I mean, I could pray sitting by a river, leave the books behind, forget all the demonstrations. Let me do a walk in the woods. Let me find just a field, a beautiful open field, maybe that, you know, has some pine trees behind it or the mountains. Man, give me a couple hours in the mountain, and I feel close to God. We'd say, okay, that's kind of that, that temperament there. So, <clears throat> here's what I want to do. Um, let, let's look at um, Psalm chapter 19. And David is writing about how God communicates to us in life. And David has in mind two different ways. He says there, there are two primary ways that God reveals, self-discloses information about what he's like and so here's, here's what we read. This is from uh, Psalm chapter 19, and starting in verse 1, it says this, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament, here's the parallel, the firmament proclaims either his handiwork or the work of his hands. Now, if, if you remember last year, we, we spent one evening, we talked about ancient cosmology, meaning how the ancients viewed the world. You know, like we view the world as, you you say earth and I think of a ball, a globe. You say earth to an ancient, they they don't think of a globe, they think of a flat disk floating in the water. And when you talk about, the, when they say firmament, they're saying, well, that's, you know, that big dome above us, that's why all the water doesn't fall down? This big hard dome that's holding everything up? That's the firm, that's just how they thought about it. And God didn't think it was important to correct their science when he came to them. But this is what he's writing about. The firmament that that, that holds it all up, that is proclaiming the glory of God. The heavens up there, that space where all these things are going on up there, that is speaking of God's glory. And he says, every day they, those things, every day they pour forth speech. And the inverse of that, even at nighttime, they don't sleep, (laughs) even at night they tell knowledge. That that phrase there, pour forth speech, literally literally means to be bubbling up. It's like a brook that's just constantly bubbling that never stops. That's the image that creation itself, it's just constantly bubbling out information about God. It has a message that never stops. He says, "There's, there's no speech and there are no words. Their sound is inaudible. Yet, in all the world their line their communication goes out and their words to the end of the world in them he has pitched a tent for the sun now here's this is again you've got to kind of think about what ancient worldview what they're meaning here pitched a tent for the sun. what does that mean he's going to liken it to a bridegroom who gets married and goes into his tent the first night of their marriage. And then the next day, he comes running out, all excited, like, that was a great night, <laughs> right? I'm married. And he says, the sun is in its tent. What's the tent? Well, it's wherever it is when you don't see it. It's nighttime. It's in its tent somewhere. And so he says, um, in them, he has pitched a tent for the sun, in the, in the wherever that is, and it is like a bridegroom who comes out of his bridal chamber it is glad like a strong man to run its course <clears throat> it's rising this is the sun is from one end of the heavens and its circuit that means it's like what it's on like what, what the the path circuit to the other end of them and nothing is hidden from its heat okay so he's using this beautiful poetic language to speak about man the world it's like it's so well-ordered and put together like a well-ordered oiled machine, we might say. They wouldn't say that. (coughs) Now, he's going to turn. So, he's talking. Now, here's the question. What kind of knowledge of God comes from that? Well, some ideas we can get. God seems to be pretty intelligent. Uh, Paul will kind of put some pieces together. Um, But this is knowledge of God, and this is what theologians call general revelation, General because it's given to everyone. You could almost call it universal revelation. Does that make sense? Everyone who, who, who has, who's, has a rationally well-developed mind can access this information about God. It doesn't matter where you live, because remember he said, every corner of the Earth, wherever you are, you have access to this information about God. So it's general, it's universal. <clears throat> now if you noticed, he listed, and there see the things I have underlined. Heavens, firmament, he he says two things, and they communicate information. Now he's going to add to that kind of compare and contrast, and he says, There's another way that we learn things. Verse seven. Look how many things are underlined. He's doing this on purpose. He says, The law of Yahweh, it's perfect, reviving life. The testimony of Yahweh, it's firm making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, making the heart rejoice. The command of Yahweh, it's pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh, this one seems to be a little different because it's, it's a subjective response versus an objective thing. Uh, the fear of the Lord, always said, leads to knowledge of God. So it's sort of just a substitute, it essentially saying, if you have the fear of the Lord, you have the knowledge of God. The, the fear of the Lord or you could say the knowledge of it it's pure it's enduring forever. The ordinance of Yah ordinances of Yahweh are true and they are righteous all together. So notice he gives more because he's saying this is fuller. the first one gives knowledge, gives information but it's not quite as full <laughs> this information um, here's here's the question does every single person on the earth as at this point, did they have the, Yah- the, the law of Yahweh? No. Lots of people. Did all did they all have the precepts, the command? No. So this is not general revelation. This is what's called special revelation. So theologians speak about general revelation. You all have it, I have it, by virtue of being a rational human being and living. Special revelation means God has specially come to an individual, a people group whatever it might be, and revealed information uniquely to them. And, that's, of course, that's Israel. Re- Israel had special revelation. So we see that in whether it be God speaking through a prophet. That would be considered God's, re- he's revealing self-revelation, something about him. Whether he comes immediately and uh, addresses someone in some supernatural way, God shows up as a man many times in the Old Testament and engages with people, this second Yahweh figure that we see in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> we see uh, God speaking, again, through prophets, uh, whether it be writing things down. The, the fullest revelation is in the person of Jesus. In fact, Jesus uses all of that language. Jesus oftentimes says, Father, I, I have revealed to, you, uh, to them your name. Now, he didn't mean like, hey guys, guess what? God's name is Yahweh would be like, yeah, we know that, man. That's like in our, in our Bible. The name is the person. Uh, Yahweh's name is him. So when Jesus says, the name is in me and I've re- I'm revealing the name, that's why he says, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father, right? He's claimed to be the second Yahweh figure. And so that's th- that would be special revelation. Let me go to... Um, This is uh, Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to go down to verse 18. Paul picks up on this exact same thing when he's thinking about these two categories, general revelation, special revelation, and he says this. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, he's just, let me go back. He's just been speaking about, do you see up above here? He says, uh, first, the Jew right there and the Greek. So, he's speaking of all people, Jews and Greeks. And he says, uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? Like, where do they have truth from? And this is what he's gonna explain. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, what, what truth are they suppressing? His invisible attributes, we're told. What are those? He, and he mentions two. His eternal power and his divine nature. So he's saying here are two things that, that by general revelation, by living in the world and, and, and having normal mental faculties, being able to perceive certain things about the universe, you can, you can realize that, well, there's someone behind it, and he's a divine being because he's not, he's not part of this because he made all of this. It had to come from somewhere. And his eternal power, there's a very powerful being, and he's super intelligent. And, um, these things have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world. So he's tying it to... The firmament, the world, the creation, whatever it might be, um, in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Um, he goes on and um, he says, there's actually another part of general revelation. He's speaking of Gentiles. He says, the Gentiles who have no access to, to the law, no access to the Torah. He says, but their behavior sometimes reveals that they have something of a law written inwardly inside them. He uses the word conscience. And of course, we all know that. Every single person (coughs) responds to certain things um, out out of our conscience. And so he says, our conscience uh, bears witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing us, sometimes defending us. We have this internal conscience uh like a measuring scale inside of us knowing at some level right and wrong he says everyone has it so that's another part of that um general revelation and then in the third chapter of romans so paul builds romans 1 he says everyone has has the knowledge of creation romans chapter 2 says everyone has the knowledge of their conscience and then chapter 3 he goes but god has now revealed a righteousness, and look what he says here. The righteousness of God has been revealed, being testified about by the law and the prophets. That's what they were pointing to. That is the righteousness of God through faith in King Jesus. Uh, to all who believe, for there is no distinction. So he's saying that's, that's special revelation. God, God has brought that now. He has given that now. So the knowledge of God comes to us Paul says, David says, through the physical world. <laughs> okay? And it communicates stuff to us if you're listening, if you're perceptive. But he also says you can suppress it. You can, which is a picture of like pushing it down under the table. You can neglect that knowledge. And he says, that's important knowledge. <laughs> it's, it's less knowledge than what we have in scripture and the prophets and ultimately in Jesus but it's still really important. God is going to talk to you through his creation, okay? Now, <clears throat> building on that, see, that's why uh, Isaiah chapter 6, he, he, he has this vision um, where he says, he sees these uh, supernatural beings at the throne room of God, and he says, and they were saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of the hosts of heaven. And he says, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And that's speaking to that same thing of the whole earth testifies to the glory of God. That's what Paul is picking up on. So as we think about the idea that God's attributes are on display through his creation, and as we look at this model of the naturalist pathway, that means that you can suppress that, you can neglect it, you can not care about it, or maybe it's actually something that God has put there designed, for you to connect with Him. It's part of the creation. It's part of the Word. You with me on that? Okay. So that's a bit of kind of theological groundwork. Um, Now we're going to move to kind of the application. What does that look like? How do I respond to that? What do I do? So the naturalist pathway. The naturalist Christian would say, where we worship has a profound impact on the quality of my worship the naturalist seeks to again leave leave the padded pews <laughs> leave the beautiful church architecture and to enter a different cathedral the cathedral that 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 wasn't made by human hands the cathedral that god himself put together and at that cathedral just like church architecture says things right you ever walk into old maybe a gothic church or an old, and you walk in, and what's the first thing you do? Because it has enormously high ceiling. You look up. The architecture is designed to make you go like this. That's the purpose of the architecture. Because it, they want you to, the, the architect wants you to think of something the minute you come in. Wow, God's big. Good. Architecture worked. The, the naturalist says, you go out into the world, it's God's architecture. It's something that when you go out there, if you, if you respond rightly to it, not looking up necessarily, but engaging with it, you're going to naturally have an emotive response in your life. And so um, naturalists will oftentimes suggest that much of the Bible, it's actually meant to be read outdoors. Most of the illusions and... Uh, illustrations are actually based on nature. And so the naturalist pathway is going to say things to you like, the best context for you to read these is where (laughs) the same context as to where the words, you know, were said. So for instance, um, you read River of Life, let's say that's, you know, it's posted on the sign on on the side screen. Okay, that's quaint. That's pretty. (laughs) Go stand in the Poudre River. Go stand on the edge of the Poudre and read the passage about uh, springs of living water, or the river of life. Do you see how it just, like, it comes to life? It's full. And, and so the naturalist Christian, like, that's where they love to do it, because that's where it means something to them. You you read about green pastures, and that can sound kind of, you know, like a postcardy. Uh, you know, it can sound like uh, the, uh, you know, just some nice picture. But But what if you go find some uh, undisturbed meadow. And that's like a long ways away from I twenty five. There's no no sound there. And then you read Psalm twenty-three about the good shepherd and making him lie down in the green pastures, and all of a sudden it comes alive to the naturalist. That's what they're thinking. Jesus himself sought out the beauty of creation. In fact, Jesus we see even he moved from Nazareth, his home, to Capernaum. Capernaum is a is a town on kind of the north western side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he called many of his disciples. and That became his home base. We see him constantly, we're told, in, in the Passion narratives. Remember when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane? How did Judas know he was going to be there? Because he didn't tell him. What we are told in the story is it said, uh, Jesus went there every single night of the Passion Week. We're also told, Jesus went to this garden with these olive... It, it said, often... So Jesus had locations that were significant and there's nothing there, it's just garden. But there was something about that that drew him to that space and that's where he goes to during the most difficult time of his life. Jesus often taught out in the countryside. Probably, most scholars would say, pointing out the things that he's talking about. For instance, look at this language here. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, or even about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? And then what he says, look, what do you suppose, you suppose some birds were flying overhead at that moment? (laughs) He goes, look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap uh, Mm -hmm. nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father, he feeds them. Aren't you of more value? Than them and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life and why are you anxious about clothing and then he goes look <laughs> consider the lilies of the field how they grow they neither toil nor, nor spin yet i tell you even solomon in all of his glory and all the clothing he had he was opulent was not arrayed like one of those lilies right there but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow it's thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Most of the time, when, when you see a baptism being done, at least here at Timberline, unless you, unless you go to our outdoor baptisms in uh, July, it's in a tank in the wall. It's beautiful. <laughs> but for this world, it, it was done in a river, you know, go to the pooter. The Jordan River, many of you have, have been to Israel with us and you've been baptized even in the Jordan River. Oftentimes, when you hear the Sermon on the Mount given, you hear from a maybe a pastor and they're standing on a carpeted stage talking about the Sermon on the Mount, not on, not, not on a grassy hill hearing those words that have to oftentimes do with the very environment that they're in. So let me do this. I want to give you three benefits to you pursuing the naturalist pathway, whether, whether it's your thing or not, <laughs> I want to give you th- that if you do, this, it'll, this is why I believe it'll be helpful for you and for me. Number one, if you pursue the spiritual pathway, um, you'll be able to visualize scriptural truths better. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, he was an 18th, cent- uh, 18th century preacher. And he loved creation analogies. In fact, he entitled in his notebook that, that, that he kept uh, this title right here, The Language and Lessons of Nature. And he said things like this. He says, you know, you ever pick a, a rose? And he says, you know how there's always thorns on a beautiful rose? He says, this reminds us that all, the, all of the temporal sweets that we have, they're mixed with bitter. <laughs> um, he said things like this. Uh, in fact, he, he wrote a whole um, paper on the spiders in, in these certain forests. I can't remember the names of a certain kind. And he wrote in his book, he said, Spiders who catch flies in their webs and then consume them. It's a picture of temptation and of the, e- the dangers of the evil one. He says, notice how, how all rivers are running to the ocean. It's a symbol of all things trending and tending back toward their God." He's, he's thinking about creation and saying, it, it, it's speaking to me. If, if Psalm 19 is accurate, it's bubbling knowledge to me constantly. <laughs> it's, make, it, it's, it's bubbling ideas. Am I perceptive? Am I listening? Am I thinking about it? Do I explore it? And Christian naturalists may, a, especially someone who this is like your big thing, a Christian naturalist may learn more from watching a colony of ants walking across the bark of a tree than hearing a sermon about the importance of unity in the church. And they'll just sit there and think about it, and they'll reflect on it, and they'll, and they'll, and they'll just be talking to God about it as they're exploring it. <clears throat> Number two, um, so it helps us visualize scriptural truth. It's constantly bubbling, talking to us. Number two, by um, uh, e- exploring the uh, naturalist pathway, we see God more clearly. Um, February 20th, 1962, uh, John Glenn, he became the first American to to orbit around the Earth, right? He he left at a speed of 17,500 miles an hour going up into space. What's really interesting is 36 years later, in 1998, he was 77 years old. He got to do it again. He got to go up into space at 77 years old, and he said he was so overwhelmed by the presence of God when he got up there as a 77-year-old man. He said these words, to look up, out, at this kind of creation, um, and he did this in a news conference from space, and not believe in God is to me impossible. Uh, And Glenn's not alone. Apparently, space flight is a rather effective uh, evangelist. Um, Brian O'Connor, he's a retired astronaut. He said, "There's an enhanced faith, or an, enhan- an enhanced faith, is pretty common for astronauts." He says, "I can tell you, I felt a sense of awe out there looking at the Earth that I have never had before in all my life." And of course, that shouldn't surprise us. Psalm 19, Romans chapter one—it's bubbling out knowledge constantly. But how much are we looking, are we listening, are we thinking, reflecting, trying to connect dots? One of the great hymns of the faith, How Great Thou Art, it celebrates the way that creation is actually calling us to worship. Uh, When, thought the woods and forest, sorry, when, when through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweet in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to you, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Gary Thomas, the, the, the author of Sacred Pathways, says this. God will speak to us through creation only if we listen, though. If you feel as though your time in front of books, he says, or listening to sermons has become stagnant, grab a coat, pick up a walking stick, step outside into the school that never closes. I love that phrase. <laughs> he's, he's getting that from Psalm 19. It never, it never stops. It's constantly bubbling so visualizing scriptural truth, seeing God more clearly, and then number three, learning to rest. Uh, if, if you're in a busy season of life, a frantic, a chaotic, a, a, a frenzied season of life, uh, one of the best ways to ruthlessly eliminate hurry, we use that phrase oftentimes around here leveraging it from Dallas Willard, is to enter nature. Uh, maybe just taking a walk, but here's, here's the trick. <laughs> You have to have the discipline of perceiving what's going on around you. I've got a friend named Doug. This is his pathway. He says, here's what I have to do. <clears throat> he said, I'll go out and I'll sit. I'll find my favorite spot or what. He says, but I have to bring up my, my journal or a notepad or something with me, and I have to record every single thing I'm experiencing. And so see, you know, he'll give examples like, there's a, there's, a, there's a cool breeze on my neck. He says, I see a bee over there on that, on that flower. Um, I feel I feel some leaves beneath my my feet. I hear the crickets chirping over there. He says, if I don't do that, <laughs> I just sort of sit there. Um, I'm not being perceptive. I'm not thinking about all of these things. And he says, what I find is when I do that, it's easier for me to then after kind of pour my heart out to God, engage. But then to, to kind of get back into my days and responsibilities and all the things that I have going on but oftentimes he says it's not change that I need it's not that I need to stop doing less things I need rest at moments and there's nothing better for rest than to you perceptively step into nature and do that practice of I'm going to be very careful as I perceive and I'm going to ask God what are what are some connections you want me to make what are some truths you want me to see have you ever done that have you ever gone into nature and just said teach me something about you God Teach me something about your world. Teach me something about what, what you're like. You know those divine attributes that Paul talked about? Your eternal power? Teach me something about that. Show me something. Let me give you four dangers. Every pathway also has dangers. And each week I'm going to be talking about here are some things that are helpful, that are good, but there are also some things that you need to be careful of, especially if you're high in this area, you might have some of these temptations. Number one danger of this spiritual temperament is individualism. What I mean by that is, you know, we see Jesus spent a lot of time outdoors, sometimes alone, but it was in preparation in order to go back into the world. Francis of Assisi is a famous guy who spent a lot of time out in nature, but even he, in his writing, said, I'm going to have to leave my beloved nature in, because there are people in the city and the town that I have, who don't know Jesus still, <laughs> and I've got to go back there. So you need to be careful not to use Creation to escape community, or to escape your sort of Christian duties that you have placed on you. Number two is um, there's a danger of putting your subjective experience out there when you're sitting there looking at the little ants crawling across the log. Whatever, whatever ideas, revelations, whatever you say, come to your mind. Be careful that 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 experience, what you're learning about God and nature. Um, doesn't come before or become more authoritative than biblical instruction, Scripture. Um, remember the psalmist, he says, I'm going to mention two things about nature the heavens and the firmament, but I'm going to mention about seven things down here because it's fuller knowledge. One of my favorite stories, um, C.S. Lewis, uh, tells this story in Mere Christianity in his chapter um, on making and begetting, he says, one time I was giving a talk to, to the RAF, the Royal Air Force, he says, and this hard-bitten old soldier stood up, and um, he was talking about theology. He, he, he gave theology talks, and um, this guy stood up and he goes, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy any of this stuff. He said, I'll tell you what. He goes, I'm a religious man. He said, I, I was out there, you know, during you know, times of war. I was in the desert. He said, in fact, I had one moment where I was in the desert, and I experienced God and, and I'll tell you what, it was such a, mev- a, a moving experience. It's, you talk about these creeds, that, that's not real, that was real. And Lewis says, you're, you're partially right. Your experience of God was more real than if you turn to, say, this creed over here or these ideas on paper. <laughs> um, he says, just like, just like this, I suppose, if you walk down and you stand on the beach and you look at the Atlantic Ocean, he's, he's in England, he says, and then you turn to a map of the Atlantic Ocean. Which one's more real? Well, th- this is, certainly. But he says, but um, <coughs> you know what that map is based on? You know what's behind it? Hundreds and thousands of people's experience out there in the Atlantic. That's what that's what created this map. Also, do you want to go somewhere? You want to go to America? Guess what you're going to need? A map. <laughs> you can't sail the Atlantic waters without it. So. Lewis says they're both important. Theology is the map. The experience of God is more real, right? But he says, an experience of God out there in the desert with nothing to ex- make sense of any of it, what's it going to do for you? What's it gonna, it's, it's not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> you need both. And I, I, I love that idea. So this idea that if, as I'm out there pursuing God and I have these experiences and thoughts, yeah, are they beautiful? Yeah, but I can't let that become more important than my engagement with Scripture and as I'm engaging in theology. Um, <clears throat> number three, and this kind of goes along with that, there's the danger of spiritual delusion. Um, nature is powerful. Uh, you'll have a lot of it. Anyone here ever heard of the Jerusalem syndrome? Go, go Google Jerusalem syndrome sometime. Uh, I, I knew it. Many people, this is a psychologists know about this who go to israel and go to jerusalem have delusions that they think they are a biblical character sometimes jesus i knew a man who he attended timberline and uh, he believed he was king david and thoroughly believed and he had been in israel for quite a period of time and he was quite certain the point is this whatever ideas you get from that's an extreme from being out in nature you test those with scripture those don't become these absolute centerpieces, but I had the experience. No, Scripture always tests our ex- subjective experiential moments. Number four, there's a the danger of idolizing nature. You've, you've probably heard the word pantheism. Pan meaning all theism, God. Pantheism is an Eastern idea that, that God is the world. The world is God's body or something. And so you you actually begin to, at some level, worship creation or panentheism, that God is in the world. He's he's maybe in that tree. He's in that thing. And so we begin to have a, uh, a, a sacred view of things that are not sacred. We begin to worship these other things. And there's a distinction. Let me give you a distinction between pantheism and Christian worship. Uh, I mentioned that my son Keaton went off to called. You'll be hearing me talk about this constantly. Sorry, I, I just terribly torn up inside. Um, <clears throat> he's gone. His, his room is downstairs, and every time I go downstairs, I walk by his room. And sometimes, in like fact, the other night, I went into his room. Like, when I really miss him, I'm like, I'm going to go hang out in Keaton's room. Um, and I go in there, and, and I see, you know, he's got, he's got his Mel Gibson posters up. We both share a love of Mel Gibson so proud of him he's got his posters up on the wall he's got his you know the knives sitting over there he's he's his bedding you know that he picked out this camouflage bedding is sitting there and all everything in that room smacks of him so I feel closer to him in that room than any other room in my house because everything in there is, is is proclaiming his personality you get that he's not in the room it would be, it'd be weird if I'm like, this is Keaton's spirit right here, you know, anything like that. That's what naturalists are saying when they go out into the world. This isn't God. But like Martin Luther said, nature is a mask of God. Mask because it's, it's, it's not him, it's hiding, but there's a face behind the mask. There's something behind it. There's something that speaks, that proclaims him, that, that speaks. I feel closest when I'm in his room, when I'm in his cathedral that he built. Does that make sense? That's the distinction between these two. And so for the true Christian naturalist, creation is nothing less than a sanctuary. It's nothing less than a sanctuary, and it it invites us to pray. And the Christian naturalist would say, how can you engage in a way that'll awaken your soul to the one behind the mask, to the one behind creation? Let me give you just a few ideas. When you're driving to the grocery store or home from work and you're, you're not rushed, let's say, um, what would it look like for you to go an extra couple miles and just find a country road and just drive on a country road and just notice, again, perceive, look around. Uh, is there a stream nearby? Becoming aware of that. Take an extra moment and look around and just appreciate, make, make the traveling important as well and not just where you're going to. And here's, here's the biggest challenge, and this is what I'm going to ask you to do this week. This is what I'm going to do this week. This is what I did the other night. Find a place outdoors that you love. Where is that? Like, like could you think of one right now? How about a time, what time of day do you like being there? What, what's the best time of day? Um, maybe, maybe get your, your favorite drink if, if you're the sensate person, well, I also like to have, you know, sensitive, okay, go get your favorite, you know, mocha latte, whatever it is, and go there. Google, um, if you're looking at mountains, Google, where are mountains in the Bible? And read that passage. If you're by water, Google, where's water in the Bible? Maybe that's the passage you read. Maybe bring a song with you that you just read the lyrics, but the song is about creation in some way. Let me give you two. These, these are two that have always spoken deeply to me about creation. You guys remember Rich Mullins? He had a song called Calling Out Your Name, and the whole thing is that as he goes out into creation, he says everywhere is pulsating the name of God, whether it be the buffalo rumbling over the, over the hills of South Dakota, and he said, man, it's It's somehow pulsating God's name, and he he goes through. Another one is by Andrew Peterson. It's called The Dark Before the Dawn. And it's about his, as he he looks at creation and the sun coming up, he's like, it speaks to me that one day God is going to redeem all of this brokenness. And when I see the rain, it reminds me that God's going to wash away all of the injustice and the evil and the screwed up things. And it's his reflection on what God ultimately has planned based on creation around him. You ever notice clouds? You know, when they eclipse the sun for just a moment, and you see that kind of bright ribbon of gold on the on the sun edge of the cloud, and then you drift from that gold to you know different colors. There's you know, white and dove and ivory until it trails off into gray. For me, my favorite time is sunset. That's the time when man, if I'm gonna sit and and it's gonna be a deeply meaningful time for me. I remember the very first time that a sunset stopped me in my tracks. I was in college my freshman year, my first semester down in Arizona, and I stepped out of Bright Angel Dorm on 3300 West Camelback Road, and I was walking over to the cafeteria, and it was evening time, and I looked over, and I saw these beautiful palm trees silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky, and I just stopped. I couldn't believe it. And now oftentimes I'll sit and I'll look, and I'll, and I'll see the mountains, these blue mountains silhouetted against an auburn sunset Sky, and I think, God, would you bubble some of that truth? Like, I just want it. Like, just talk to me. I don't know what you want to say, but 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 say something to me. And that is my favorite time of day. That's the time of day when I connect really easily with God. When I see this canvas of blue, textured by those clouds that I was talking about that have reflected on them the rays of the sun as it's going down and there are orange and apricot and peach and salmon colors and maybe there's even ribbons of magenta and red. Oh, it's easy to worship right there for me. <laughs> I wonder how exploring the naturalist pathway might be a supplement for you to enjoy God a little bit more to experience and receive His love for you a little bit more, to hear that bubbling of something, might be something unique for you that you need that I don't, or that I need that you don't, to experience His love. Oh, Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder consider all the worlds Thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder Thy power throughout the whole universe is on display, then my soul starts singing. My God to You, how great You are." During this next song, we're going to sing those words. And I would ask you if if you'd like, go grab the elements, the front or the back. Go back to your seat or stand up wherever you want to around the room. You can take it right there. You can take it at your seat. Take the elements in the presence of your God who's bubbling at you right now, and you're going to go out into his cathedral in just a couple minutes. And then stand and engage in the song. Man, don't you love that, that song? It's so beautiful how great God is when, I, when I'm paying attention when I'm stepping out into his cathedral, when I'm listening for that bubbling communication of his world. My my encouragement, my prayer for you and for me this week is that you would be listening for the bubbling and asking him to communicate, asking him to talk to you through his good world and that you would experience his love In deeper ways. I love you guys. Thanks so much for engaging this. Thanks for for being here, for leaning in. Love being with you guys. Have a great rest of your week.